So Paul uh, quotes that. He quotes somebody else um, when he quotes that. But it says, bad company, he says, bad company corrupts, corrupts good morals. And what that means is that Christians, what he's, what, yeah, what Christians are supposed to avoid spending too much time with non-Christians who don't know Jesus. Uh, because if we spend too much time with non-Christians who don't know Jesus, they will tend to have a bad effect on our behavior. They'll tend to make us do things or say things or think things that we shouldn't say that are bad. Because they're bad and they, their bad influence kind of rubs off on us if we spend too much time around them. So that's what Paul meant by bad company corrupts good morals. Perhaps your parents uh, may have said to you uh, or warned you at some point not to hang around with certain other children because they're not really the best children to hang around. A boy or a girl, maybe a neighbor. Hopefully not another ch- boy or girl at church, but uh, some other boy or girl that uh, is in the neighborhood that their family doesn't go to church and the boy or the girl doesn't speak the way they should. Um, and maybe you haven't had that happen to you. Uh, I can remember a couple of kids when I was a boy or a girl that I really wasn't supposed to spend too much time with because that was the case. Um, but at any rate, uh, bad company corrupts good morals. And this uh, passage that we're looking at about King Jehoshaphat uh, and King Ahab uh, is kind of teaching, among other things, that point. Uh, that believing Jehoshaphat was not really supposed to spend time around unbelieving Ahab, let alone enter into a close relationship with him. But that's exactly what he did. And he did that sinfully. He uh, spent time with a man and associated himself with a man that he wasn't supposed to spend time with. And that's one of the main points of this passage, actually, and of the two points of the sermon, which I'll get to in a moment. I'll tell you uh, more about that. Just a reminder, uh, we've been looking at the reign of Jehoshaphat, who was king of the southern kingdom. Remember, the northern kingdom's name is Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Uh, that Israel broke into those two kingdoms after the death of King Solomon. Um, and Jehoshaphat is ki- king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And we began looking at his reign last week, and we're going to lo- continue looking at his reign for a couple more uh, weeks and a couple more chapters as well. Uh, but uh, he was one of the southern kingdom's most godly kings, King Jehoshaphat was. Yet... As today's passage that we're looking at attests, and next week's as well, even Jehoshaphat committed some serious sins during his reign. Uh, And those sins were committed, uh, the the big ones, which we're going to be looking at today and next time, Lord willing, uh, were committed during the earlier portion of his rather lengthy reign, uh, recorded for us here in this chapter. And these sins that I'm referring to involved his associations with the ruler of the northern kingdom of Israel, the notorious idolater King Ahab. Now, Ahab was not the legitimate king of the northern kingdom of Israel. He was the de facto king of Israel, but not the legitimate, appropriate God-ordained king. 
Why do I say that? Because he was wearing a crown. The reason I say it is because the citizens of the northern kingdom of Israel were descendants of the patriarch Isaac, whose other name was Israel. And the inhabitants of the northern kingdom that Ahab was ruling over, they were citizens of, uh, they were made up of descendants of the patriarch Jacob. Ten of the twelve tribes that descended from Jacob uh, were up in the northern kingdom, made up the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, God had previously ordained that all of Jacob's descendants, all 12 tribes that descended from him, were to be in subjection to David, or one of David's royal descendants who came after him. And at the time about which the chronicler uh, is writing here in chapter 18, at this time the legitimate that is to say, God-ordained, royal ruler, or royal heir of David, was King Jehoshaphat of Judah, not Ahab, who was a usurper of the crown up in the north. So, the people of the north were supposed to be under the Davidic king, but were not. They were in a rebellion, and uh, continued to be from this point onward. Um, But at this point, it's also important to remember that as descendants of the patriarch Jacob, the inhabitants of the northern kingdom of Israel were in covenant with Yahweh. Since the Lord had not only made his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also with all of Jacob's descendants, all of them who were descended from Jacob, including the ten northern tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Israel. All of these folks in the north, including Ahab, were in covenant with Yahweh, the true God. Even though most of them, especially Ahab, were in flagrant violation of that covenant uh, and the terms of that covenant. So keep that in mind as we go through this passage. So there are two points that we're going that summarize what's taught. Uh, I believe uh, I know actually in uh, verses one through twenty-seven. They are this: first, we see Jehoshaphat sinfully allies himself with King Ahab by arranging to have his son marry Ahab's daughter, and secondly, in this passage. Uh, which we'll spend more time uh, looking at, is that Jehoshaphat sinfully allies himself with King Ahab by agreeing to fight alongside Ahab. But first, he sinfully allies himself with this wretch by arranging to have his son, Jehoshaphat's son, marry Ahab's daughter. That's uh, mentioned only in verse 1. That's the only mention we get of it. Um, now, Ahab, now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, which, by the way, is a, an allusion to what he just said in the previous uh, chapter about Ahab. I mean, not about Ahab, about Jehoshaphat. Um, the chronicler had alluded to the blessings that God had given to him because of covenant faithfulness that he had exhibited, one of which was great riches um, that he had accumulated, that God let him accumulate. Um, and this is an allusion back to those great uh, uh, covenant blessings, one of them anyway, 
that Jehoshaphat enjoyed from the Lord. But then we read in the next phrase of this um, first verse, Oh, and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. Whoops. He did this, of course, by arranging, and arranged marriages were very common in the day. Um, in fact, they were the order of the day in uh, the ancient Near East and in Israel. Um, and he uh, allied himself with Ahab by arranging to have uh, his son, whose name was Jehoram, um, who was a covenant child, his covenant child, um, the, the one in line for the throne, to arrange, he arranged to have Jehoram marry the daughter of Ahab, whose name was Athaliah. Ring a bell? Queen, quote-unquote queen, Athaliah, was the daughter of Ahab and who? Jezebel. Sweet family. Um, let's read a little bit about Ahab and Jezebel. 1 Kings chapter 16. Verses 29 through 32, and then I'm going to skip over to verse chapter 18 and read a couple of verses there. But 1 Kings chapter 16, starting in verse 29, 1 Kings 16. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, uh, that wasn't exactly good stock. Uh, now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel, the northern kingdom, in Syria, excuse me, in Samaria, 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And Omri and Zimri were, they were real doozies themselves. And Jeroboam the second, and Jeroboam the first. I mean, evil, evil, wicked men. And yet, Ahab tops them all, apparently. Um, verse 31, And it came about, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. I'm putting that, inserting that in there. Uh, though it was, though it had been a tri- it came about that though it had been a Let's start this again. Verse 31. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, Ethbal, rather, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Verse 32. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, which was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. Thus, um, oh, I'll, I'll read, uh, let's see. Yeah, I'll stop there. So that's that's one thing that we read about uh, Ahab. Then we'll hear a little bit about Jezebel over in chapter 18 uh, of First Kings. So turn a page or so, looking at verses 17 through 19 of First uh, Kings 18. Verse 17, And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he, Elijah, said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. 
Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So, you all knew uh, this background, but I just wanted to remind you of the family from which Athaliah descends, the parents from whom she descends. So let's talk about Athaliah and some of her most notable uh, accomplishments. She murdered, Athaliah did, all but one of her own grandchildren following the death of her son, Ahaziah, um, so that she could get the throne and become queen. She wanted to kill all of them, but she missed one of them because of the intervention of uh, Jeho- uh I'm trying to remember her name now. Um, Jehoshabiah. There we go. Jehoshabiah. Anyway, she murdered everyone she could uh, so that she could get the throne and thought she'd got them all. So this is Athaliah did this. Um, and also she then proceeded to unlawfully and illegitimately rule over the southern kingdom of Judah for six whole years before she was finally taken out, unceremoniously dispatched. Um, at the command of uh, her grandson, who was elevated to the throne, uh, Joash. So that's Athaliah. And uh, she uh, is married to Jehoram by an arrangement between Jehoshaphat and her father Ahab. Not a wise thing for Jehoshaphat to do, to say the least. Evidence that Jehoshaphat's arrangement of this marriage between Jehoram and Athaliah was a serious sin on Jehoshaphat's part. There are three different evidences we can uh, bring to bear here. First of all, the law itself, the law of Moses, warned of the spiritual danger of intermarrying with people who worship other gods. And it forbade that practice over in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You can turn with me if you want to. Deuteronomy 7, the first four verses. We read this from the Mosaic Law, which is the law of God. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering, this is before Israel entered into Canaan, when the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it and shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God shall deliver you, deliver them before you, and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they... Uh, the uh, the children of these uh, godless, uh, idolatrous uh, peoples, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Now, this happened to be um, uh, a Jew, namely Ahab and his family and his wife, uh, they were not uh, Phoenicians, although they uh, came, they got their idol worship from the Phoenicians, which was one of the surrounding nations um, uh, that they were not supposed to emulate. 
and we're certainly not supposed to intermarry with, and yet here we have this intermarriage with an uh, idolatrous woman coming from an idolatrous uh, family. Secondly, another evidence that uh, he was not supposed to pull this stunt that he pulled, the chronicler and the Holy Spirit speaking through him testify over in chapter 21 of Second Chronicles to the unholy influence that Athaliah eventually had upon Joram. Second Chronicles chapter 21. So back to Second Chronicles 21, we read starting in verse 5 and then verse 6. This is later on in, uh, when uh, Jehoram is uh, king, after he becomes king. Now when Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure, he killed all his brothers with the sword and some of the rulers of Israel also. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab did. For Ahab's daughter was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord, the chronicler and the Holy Spirit, inserted that reference to his wife, as part of the influence that made him such a wicked uh, ruler himself. And then the third evidence that Jehoshaphat wasn't supposed to marry off his son was that Jehoshaphat, excuse me, was that the Lord himself implicitly in chapter 19 of Second Chronicles implicitly denounces, and I won't bother to read it for the sake of time, but he denounces both Jehoshaphat's military involvement with Ahab, which we're getting to now, in the second point, but also he implicitly denounces his marrying off his son to Ahab's daughter in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 19. We'll look at that next week, Lord willing. He was not supposed to do this. And folks, the dangers of being bound together in an intimate way with unbelievers, um, that danger of doing that is reiterated in the New Testament. Turn with me to Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, chapter six, fairly well-known passage, probably to many of us, starting in verse fourteen through verse eighteen of Second Corinthians, again chapter six. Do not be bound or unequally yoked, is the older way of uh, older way of um, translating it. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. There it is. Uh, the bound, bound together implies an intimate binding. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? The point is, it's a rhetorical question, but the point is none. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I shall, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This commandment to refrain from being intimately caught up with 
and getting involved in relational entanglements with unbelievers still applies, folks. Now, these relational entanglements, entanglements, uh, these this partnership, to use Paul's word, um, can take different forms. The most obvious intimate relationship that or partnership that Christians must avoid ent- entering into with unbelievers is obviously marriage. Those of you who are unmarried, who hope to be someday, you children and you adult children, take note. God says you may not marry an unbeliever. You may not. It's a sin. You cannot even begin to entertain that, which brings me to the second kind of intimate relationship, or more intimate relationship that believers need to avoid with unbelievers, and that is a dating relationship. Do not, and I have some other things that I could say about why dating traditional dating should be avoided, but I won't do that now, uh, but a dating relationship or a courting relationship or whatever should not be entered into by two uh, people um, who, where you have one as a believer and one as an unbeliever. So you, uh, again, you covenant children are forbidden from doing that. God says, don't even think about it through Paul, as well as the text that we're looking at and the others that we've just looked at this morning. By the way, there might be some other intimate relationships that would also uh, apply, probably business partnerships with unbelievers, um, uh, financial dealings of a more um, intimate and significant uh, type, probably, which arguably is a business partnership. And there might be some other relationships that I'm thinking of as well, or that might be apply rather as well, uh, but I, that I'm not thinking about. But you get the idea. Don't do stuff like this, which is what Jehoshaphat did. Godly Jehoshaphat did. Secondly, godly Jehoshaphat sinned by allying himself, um, uh, sinfully allied himself with Ahab by agreeing to fight alongside Ahab in a war that he was wanting to wage with the Arameans. We see that in verse, verses 2 through 27. I'm going to do my best to uh, get through this point uh, without uh, uh, going into much of our lunchtime, but bear with me here. There's a lot going on, so I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you shotgun style. So, um, first, we, we, so back to our passage, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, rather, uh, 18. First, what he does uh, is the chronicler provides us with a synopsis of the deliberations uh, that occur between Ahab and Jehoshaphat. That synopsis is in 2 and 3, and I'll read it here in a second. Uh, but basically, uh, what happens is, uh, after, the, after the marriage arrangement uh, between the Ahab's daughter and uh, Jehoram, Jehoshaphat goes down, and they have to go down even though it's north, they, they go down elevation-wise to go to Samaria. And he goes down to Ahab, visits him, and Ahab holds a great feast to honor Jehoshaphat, um, who is visiting. But really, the feast is, is manipulation. It is designed to help persuade Jehoshaphat to team up with Ahab in his planned battle against uh, the Arameans, who are annoying Ahab or afflicting him, or whatever was going on up there. The, the chronicler tells us that Ahab, and this is in the, the latter part of verse 2. Let me read verse 2. And so 
Uh, and some years later, he went down to visit Ahab at Samaria, and Ahab slaughtered many sheep and oxen, there's the feast, for him, for Jehoshaphat and the people who were with him, and induced him to go up against remote Gilead. Now, the chronicler says induced there. He uses that verb. Uh, what Ahab was doing was he was inducing or persuading Jehoshaphat. That Hebrew word behind that word that's translated induced sometimes, not always, but sometimes means to entice or to seduce. And that is probably the meaning here and is probably the way it should be translated but isn't by the New American Standard. It should probably be that uh, Ahab seduced him to go up against remote Gilead, Jehoshaphat, to go up against remote Gilead. Um, that's probably what the chronicler, by writing that word, is trying to indicate to us that Ahab's being, or um, Jehoshaphat is about to be seduced into doing something evil. And lo and behold, that's what happens. Verse 3 uh, is a synopsis of the negotiations that take place uh, in verses 4 through 27. Verse 3 is a synopsis of those negotiations, kind of summarizing it. So first I'm going to read the synopsis, verse 3. And Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me against remote Gilead? And he, Jehoshaphat, said to him, I am as you are, and my people as your people, and we will be with you in the battle. Now that's that's the final outcome of these negotiations which are described between verses 4 and 27. Okay, so verse 3 summarizes those negotiations. We're going to go into uh, what's uh, going on here, but let me just say this about what is said in verse 3. What Ahab does is he points to, or excuse me, what Jehoshaphat does, rather, after Ahab asks his questions, will you go with me into battle? Uh, What Ahab, or Jehoshaphat does is he says, I am as you are and my people are as your people. What he's doing is he's pointing to the historical, familial uh, ties that existed between the peoples of the two nations, of Israel and Judah. And honestly, um, that's not, I mean, displays of familial loyalty or unity are in general a good thing. We should be loyal to our family members, even our extended family members. Blood is thicker than water sort of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's, it's generally speaking a good thing unless it's at the expense of obedience to God. Remember that in your relationships with uh, your family members, near or extended. Um, so Jehoshaphat's idea, well, we're family, was a good thing until it involved a man named Ahab. Then it became a bad thing. And he didn't see it or want to see it for whatever reason. Well, so Ahab asks his question, and uh, and so, but so getting into the more expanded uh, negotiation that takes place um, before the final outcome, which we just read in verse three, Jehoshaphat goes, "No, no, wait a second. Um, he." I want to hear from the Lord about this before I make any decisions. So this is before the final decision has been made. So he insists on consulting with the Lord. Verse 4, Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to king of Israel, the king of Israel, Please 
inquire first of the for uh, inquire first for the word of the Lord. So his desire is to seek the Lord, Jehoshaphat's desire, and that's commendable. However, on this occasion, it's utterly unnecessary and arguably inappropriate for him to seek God's counsel. Why? Because God has already made known his will regarding associations with apostate Israelites such as Ahab. Stay away. Verse Deuteronomy 27 makes this point. Verse 15. It says, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Ahab was cursed, was under God's curse. He knew that. Jehoshaphat knew that. Moreover, we read over in Leviticus, chapter 20, something similar. Read it quickly. If I can find it. It says, now this is, uh, by the way, refers to Molech, which was the god of the Ammonites. But you can insert Baal here. It's, it's, they're interchangeable. Any, any, any foreign god works, including Baal, which is what Jehoshaphat, uh, what uh, Ahab's preference was. So it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, this is Leviticus 21, verse 1, um, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel and from the aliens uh, sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech. And notice the problem isn't so much that he's given his offspring to Molech, but the rest of the sentence, so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name, which Baal would have done the same thing, or Chemosh, or any of those. Um, he goes on, if the people of the land, moreover, should ever disregard the man when he gives any of his offspring to Moloch in worship, so as not to put him to death, then I myself, the Lord says, I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among their people both him and all who play the harlot after him by playing uh, the harlot after Moloch. This is a no-brainer. And yet, Jehoshaphat proceeds. So Jehoshaphat didn't need another word from the Lord in order to know that he was forbidden from doing anything with the likes of such an idolater as Ahab. This is a principle, again, that still applies to believers in the New Testament age. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn with me there. I know there's a lot of turning, but it's, it's worth it. I would suggest. First Corinthians chapter 5, this is after the uh, man is caught with, uh, uh, is in an adulterous relationship with his father's wife, so it's incestuous, and the church is tolerating this in Corinth. A lot of evil was being tolerated in Corinth. And we read in, um, I'll start in verse uh, 
I'll start in verse 9. Uh, he's already said, clean out the old leaven, which means get rid of the man, put him out of your fellowship, excommunicate him. Um, and he says, I, verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to, uh, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. If I told you to not associate with the world, you'd have to go out of the world. Then he says in verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do, and his implicit, what have you to do with judging outsiders? Uh, Do you not judge those who are within the church? And the answer is yes. We need to judge those uh, within the church, judge their actions. We can't see a person's heart, but we can judge their behavior and their actions. Um, and then he says in verse 13, but those who are outside God judges. And then he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. We are not supposed to associate with, we are supposed to associate with folks out in the world who are unbelievers and uh, make no apologies uh, for their unbelief. But we are not supposed to associate with people who call themselves Christians and who are members of this or some other church who are flagrantly disobeying God and don't care and aren't, aren't, uh, aren't repenting of their sin. They are so-called brethren who we must not associate with. This text tells us right here. And that's whether or not, by the way, the church officially, meaning the leadership of the church, has, has uh, made a pronouncement with respect to that man's behavior and put him out of the church or not. If we don't do our jobs, is what I'm trying to tell you. Well, first of all, you probably shouldn't be at this church. But if we don't do our jobs as leaders, you need to do yours, even if we don't do ours. Make sure we do ours. But you're not to hang out with people who call themselves Christians, but who are flagrantly uh, covenant, flagrant covenant breakers, I'll put it that way. Because uh, of the, uh, the, the, the dishonor that it brings to God, their behavior, by call, naming the name of Christ, but spitting in his face. Well, in response to Jehoshaphat's insistence, hey, we need, I want to consult the Lord on this, Ahab brings together 400 prophets, who, by the way, probably claimed to be prophets of Yahweh, of Israel's God, and he um, asks them, what should we do? This is verse 5. What should we do? And uh, they, they give their uh, wholehearted uh, support to Ahab's cause. Uh, then the king of Israel assembled the prophets, 400 men, said to them, Should we go up against remote Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for God, again, Israel's God, they're claiming to speak for, will give it into the hand of the king. Well, Jehoshaphat, wisely, finally we have some wisdom here, is suspicious of these prophets' over-the-top enthusiasm for Ahab's plan. And so he insists on a second opinion from a prophet who's not on 
Ahab's payroll. So we read in verses 6 through 8, but Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imla. We have no, there's no reference anywhere else in the scriptures to Micaiah, the son of Imla, except here and also in the parallel account in Kings. We know nothing more about him than this little speech that's recorded in both those places. Yet, Micaiah, son of Imla, was very well known to Ahab, much to Ahab's consternation. The narrative, briefly, at this point, after that, uh, 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 interaction uh, about Micaiah, the narrative then briefly departs from the main action uh, of the storyline, if you will, to recount an earlier scene when Ahab's prophets were before Ahab and Jehoshaphat. So verses 9 through 11 should actually, and I tried to translate it as I was reading, um, I tried to translate it this way, but it should actually be translated uh, not as a mere past, but as a past perfect. So uh, I'll reread it again. Uh, the New American Standard says, Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne. That's merely in the past. It should be the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting, uh, had been each sitting on his throne, had been arrayed in their robes, and had been sitting at the threshold a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. In other words, this is passed from the point of this conversation that's going on between uh, Ahab and um, uh, Jehoshaphat. This has happened prior to that point in time, verses 9 through 11. Okay, So it's a break from the action, if you will, um, uh, of the narrative. Uh where am I here? There we go. Um, so the main action resumes in verse 12. So let me read verse 12. <clears throat> well, uh, well, actually, let me, let me read verses... Uh, no, I won't. I won't bother. You, you, you know what's going on there. Verse 12. Then the messenger who went to summon, My, then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah, Micaiah spoke to him, spoke to Micaiah, saying, Behold, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king, so please let your word be like one of them and, and speak favorably. So that's what the messenger says to Micaiah. He's not present yet uh, before the two kings. And um, so there's pressure. The, the messenger is putting pressure on Micaiah to conform his, his prophecy to that which has already been heard by Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And the pressure is pretty intense, but... Micaiah responds with an oath that verifies that he himself is a true prophet of the Lord and not a fake one like the other 400. He says in verse 13, As the Lord lives, what my God says, I will speak. In other words, that's it. I'm not going to speak anything else regardless of what the other prophets speak if it differs from what God says. Now, ironically, what Micaiah then proceeds to do immediately afterwards, once he appears uh, before um, the two kings, is he proceeds 
to then do the very thing that he'd just sworn that he wouldn't do. Which is say something other than what the Lord had told him to say. Verse 14. And when he came to the king, meaning Ahab, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to remote Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And what does Micaiah do? He says, go up and succeed, for they will be given into your hand. Is that what the Lord said to him? No. And yet, he says this. Ahab realizes he's lying to him and solemnly urges him uh, by way of oath puts him under oath in verse 15, says, tell me the truth. So Micaiah does so, predicting disaster for Ahab and the army of Israel in verse 16. So he said, I saw all Israel, meaning the northern kingdom, scattered on the mountains like sheep, which have no shepherd. Ahab would otherwise be the shepherd. He's nowhere to be found. Why? Because he's dead. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. And then Micaiah gives an explanation as to why he has just given two contrary, contradictory answers to Ahab's question, shall we go up to remote Gilead and fight the Aramaeans? Because he said back in verse 14, yeah, go up, you'll succeed. And then in verse 16, now you're going to die. Now why? Well, it's mystifying but I think I can unmystify it with the help of the commentators I read. Um, what he then, he then transitions to talking about this vision that he had, this heavenly vision that he had. And what he does is by me- immediately talking about this heavenly vision is he basically says that both the answers I just gave you, king, you'll go ahead, go on up, and you're going to die. Both those answers... Um, were in response to what he had seen in this vision that the Lord had given them. It was a vision of a courtroom scene in which God himself was questioning certain spiritual entities that were gathered before him, both angels and apparently demons as well. And this is a vision that he's had. So verses 18 through 22 describes that vision. I'm not going to repeat it here just for the sake of time because we've gone over a little bit. Um, but you know, I, I read it earlier, and you know what goes on. And so he, he, he recounts the vision to, to explain why he's given two contradictory answers. So basically what he does is with reference, uh, uh, w- with this reference to his vision, Micaiah implies that his first answer to Ahab, uh, Ahab's question, shall we go up, that you'll succeed if you go up, That was his answer. That first answer was given because Micaiah knew, based on the vision, what he'd heard in the vision that he'd been given, that the Lord intended to have Ahab killed in battle. So he's like, go up, die. But he doesn't tell him that. He just, go on, go on, go go up. Because he already knows the Lord's planning on taking him out with with the Aramaic, you know, uh, in battle. And so he's explaining, essentially, why from this vision and, but he not only explains his first answer, which was a lie to Ahab, that he would succeed, um, but he also indicates, uh, by way of description of this vision, uh, that this, his second answer to Ahab's question, um, he gives the second answer, which was, again, your forces are going to be defeated and you're going to die. He gives that 
by way of this vision. Because the vision, he knew, you see, based on the vision, that that would be the actual outcome. Ahab would die, and the forces, the armies of Israel would be scattered. So he knew that was the outcome, but he also knew God wanted to kill him in the battle. So he goes, go ahead, go on up, you'll succeed. It was a lie. And he gives the second answer after being pressed, because it was the truth. And it was also, he knew that that was what God was going to bring about. So both of Micaiah's answers were designed to do what? Confuse Ahab with the ultimate result that Ahab would be lured into his divinely decreed death on the battlefield. That's why both answers were apparently given, as indicated by this is his explanation, the vision. Now, a word about the Almighty's use of an evil spirit to deceive Ahab. Verse 22, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a... This is after he's just finished describing the vision. Now behold... um, now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of these prophets, these your prophets, Ahab, uh, for the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. That troubles a lot of people when they read it. Wait, the Lord decreed, told an evil spirit to go and deceive Ahab. That, doesn't, that makes me unsettled. Well, it used to make me unsettled when I read it, but no longer. And here's why, and hopefully this will help you if you're a little unsettled. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God decrees every single event that has ever or will ever take place in human history. Every event is decided ahead of time by God. Paul says that in Ephesians 1.11, clear as a bell. But this does not make God the author or the source of the evil events which he himself decrees. Scripture makes this abundantly clear. The responsibility for the evil is with the creature, the fallen creature, be that creature human or angelic. The, the, the responsibility for the evil falls with the fallen creature, who is the author of whatever evil event takes place, including the deception of Ahab by this spirit in the mouths of his prophets. There's no contradiction there. Some mystery, yes. No contradiction. And, even on this occasion, the case can be made that Ahab wasn't deceived. Right? Into going into battle. Why? He's now hearing before the battle about God's plans to deceive him through the prophets that he's just heard from not long ago. So he's not really clueless. He's going into this wide-eyed, if you will. And yet, he personally chooses to go into the battle anyway with some machinations, hoping, hoping to outwit God. We'll get to that next week. Um, but he goes in, by his own choice, into battle anyway. As I've said numerous times before, sin makes us stupid. Unless God graciously intervenes and rescues us from ourselves. He didn't do that for Ahab. He did for Jehoshaphat. But not for Ahab. 
Well, after Micaiah delivers his message, Ahab throws him into prison, verses 26 and 27. He does this in the hope that uh, by doing this, by throwing uh, God's messenger, uh, the Lord's messenger, into prison, that he might compel the Lord to arrange his, Ahab's, own safe return from the battle, because after all, he has his man in the dungeon. God's response to Ahab's machinations designed to manipulate the Lord ain't going to happen. Not going to happen. Verse 27. Micaiah said, speaking through uh, as the Lord's spokesman, If you indeed return safely, Ahab, the Lord has not spoken by me. And then he tells the people, listen up. Make note of this. If Ahab returns, I'm not a prophet of God. But of course, Ahab doesn't return. And he is the prophet of God. No one, no human being, no king, or pseudo-king, a man of great power, woman of great power, can thwart the will of the sovereign God. In fact, chapter 20 of Second Chronicles, verses 5 and 6, makes this point. This is later on. We'll get to this, Lord willing, in a few weeks. But this is Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat speaking after a, a battle that was coming up uh, against him uh, later on. And he says, verse 5, Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, so he's praying to the Lord, the God of our fathers, Art thou not God in the heavens, and art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? And then he says, Power and might are in thy hand, so that no one can stand against thee. No one. Ahab learned that lesson the hard way. And Jehoshaphat sinned by allying himself with this vile human being in the way that he did. Something he shouldn't have done as a believer, a believing Jew, but he did. Sound familiar? Ever done something as a Christian? I know the answer. That you shouldn't have done, but did. We all have. Jehoshaphat found grace. Lots of grace and forgiveness, but this was evil. Make no mistake. And this is not an imitation, this is not an action that Jehoshaphat, a decision that Jehoshaphat made that we should emulate. Don't, don't go against your conscience. Don't go against God. It's stupid. And it's dishonoring to the one who saved you. From his wrath. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus alone to save you from the hell that you deserve, we all deserve it. We all deserve to go to hell. Just one sin earns us that. If you've not trusted Christ, Jesus, the God man, as the only your only hope of being forgiven by God, you need to do that right now. Because you may not be given another chance to do it, and there's no hope after you take your last breath. Trust Christ if you've never done it. That's all you need to hear from this sermon. If you're not a Christian, you need Christ 
believe on him to save you from your sins. Let's pray.